Well, let's just begin by reading the psalm, New American Standard Bible, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Some of you may have seen this, but yesterday I just asked people for memories of places in popular culture that this this appears. I, I remember there's an episode of Bonanza where an innocent man is shot and is dying in the streets. He is an Indian, a Native American, and uh, he is asking as he dies if uh, Lauren Green, Paul Cartwright, uh, however you want to refer to him, would quote, and, and I forgot how he referred to this passage, but he's talking about Psalm 23, and he quotes the passage to him uh, in that show. When I asked that yesterday on my Facebook page, Laura Alvarez, Justin's mother, who, who was visiting with us Sunday, put an article there uh, from uh, a biblical journal that just mentions some of the places where this psalm appears in popular culture. And it's an interesting article, if you can get on my page and look on that. Um, it, uh, it It is an interesting article. So they talk about sometimes there's, there's alterations in it. You know, maybe those alterations are significant. Maybe those alterations are not significant. But this is a passage that is very well known to us. And since about 1880, it has been the number one passage, at least since 1880, uh, the number one passage used in funerals, particularly because of verse 4. And what, what, is, what is a challenge to us sometimes is to look at passages that we're familiar with and to make sure we are seeing in them what's there. And tonight we're going to try to do that with this passage. Since this is a passage you are so familiar with, you know, feel free to, to make various comments about it. And maybe some of you have thought a lot about it. Just some preliminary observations. Uh, you find that this psalm is very personal. With, with terms like my six times, me seven times, and I three times. And that is on the basis of the New American Standard Bible. But when we think of a shepherd, a shepherd is... You, you don't have a one shepherd to one sheep ratio. 
I mean, a shepherd is the shepherd of a flock, not just of one individual sheep. And so most of the time, the term shepherd is used of God. For example, in Psalm 80, verse 1, God is our shepherd. He's our shepherd. But He is also, from this psalm, my shepherd. Each sheep has a personal relationship with the shepherd. And the shepherd has a personal relationship with each individual sheep. That's indicated by this particular term. Some object to the term personal relationship with God. And I recognize that that may be used in a variety of ways. But the term itself is not a bad term, though those words are not specifically found in Scripture. And what you'll also find is that the Lord is referred to in verses 1 through 3 and verse 6, He is referred to in third person, the Lord or He. But in verses 4 and 5, He is referred to in second person as you. It is also interesting to me that in Psalm 22, as the writer pours out his heart to God, and then finally at the end, God answers him. He acknowledges that he depends upon God and makes a vow to praise God in Psalm 22, verse 22, even to future generations in verses 30 and 31, that we have this statement In Psalm 23, it is a fitting follow-up to Psalm 22. And in this psalm, the author makes no demands on God. He does not make any complaints. But he just talks about his trust and dependence upon him in the midst of his situations. The Lord himself, the word Lord is only used in verses 1 and 6. But it's used at the beginning, it's used right there at the end as kind of an inclusio. Uh, One other comment before we get into the text, and that is the image in verses 1 through 4 is the image of the Lord as shepherd, The image in verses 5 and 6 is the image of the Lord as a host. He receives us into His house. But let me just ask you, it begins, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, And by the way, in Hebrew, a general sentence structure is the verb goes before the subject. If the subject goes before the verb, and I'm not saying that this is not the English words that the subject goes before the verb, but if the subject comes before the verb in Hebrew, the subject is said to be emphatic. And the Lord is emphatic here. The Lord is my shepherd. There's strong emphasis on Him. But one of the things that makes poetry powerful is because often in a line of poetry, the Lord is my shepherd, four words in English, Two in Hebrew, but it can be convey it can convey a world of ideas. Let me just ask you 
And let me think of biblical cases. What are some things a shepherd does biblically? What are some things you think of in the Bible story about shepherds? Protector. Okay, he leads, he protects. You know, all those things leads, protects. He's to have food. Okay, provisions. He makes provisions. Man, we got a alliteration going here. Uh, provides, protects. Um, what else did you say? Oh, leads. Okay, that wasn't P. I thought we had a P with that. Uh, think of a P, right? Uh, but anyway, um, but he leads, he protects, he provides. All these things. I'll tell you some verses that come to my mind when I think of shepherd. One, when when um, Jacob was talking to Laban, and Jacob is telling Laban that he has cheated him so many times, and and he says that I was out keeping the sheep, and he said the heat consumed me by day. And the frost by night. He's talking about being a shepherd there. In Genesis 31, it might need to look at verse 39 and 40. But by day the heat consumed me and the frost by night. Being a shepherd was not a nine to five job. You didn't clock in and clock out. You were where the flock was. And you were with the flock. And you were with the flock continually. And if the flock was out in the field in the heat of the day, you were out there with them. If they're out in the field in the frost of night, you were out there with them. So being a shepherd was a demanding job, one of the things that this verse says. And being a, a shepherd could be a dangerous job. You remember when David was talking about being a shepherd to Saul... He talked about, I was keeping the flock, and a lion came and attacked the flock, and a bear came and attacked the flock. It was a dangerous job. You stood there against all comers, and you protected that flock. Whoever came, whatever happened, you were the one that was standing there and protecting the flock. And and it was a dangerous thing for a flock to be without a shepherd. You see that expression uh, in Moses was going to pass away. He, He prayed that Israel would not be a flock without a shepherd. And uh, you see that same kind of idea in First Kings twenty-two, verse twenty-nine, twenty-two, verse seventeen. We'll invoke that passage a little bit later. But it was a dangerous job to be a shepherd. Now, uh, also, when you were a shepherd, there was no sheep. Left behind. No sheep left behind. You see that in Luke uh, 15. You see that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. Now, there are some areas in life where 90 out of 100 and certainly 99 out of 100, you're doing great. You're doing great. You know, a lot of a lot of students are satisfied with 99 uh, out of 100 on a test, and when you get one that isn't, 
Especially your Yeah, that's right. Especially. Especially. In the last couple of years, I remember I had um, one, um, it was a preacher's daughter from, from Texas, and and um, she kept coming up and, and uh, haggling until she missed one question. And uh, But I finally realized, I began to appreciate it when I realized she wanted to learn. And she really was wanting to learn the material, and she didn't wasn't satisfied with ninety nine. But that's that's the exception, uh, as David says. That's the exception. If you can if you can show me somebody that can get to base safely in baseball ninety nine times out of a hundred, somebody's going to make a lot of money in the course of their life. Sometimes that's good, but sometimes that's not so good. You know, let's t- reduce the numbers some. Say you have ten children and nine of them come home. You know you don't. Hey, nine out of ten is not bad. You don't say that. You go out and search for the one that's lost, and that's the way it is with being a shepherd. Shepherd was more like being a parent than it is like those other things we talked about. You went out and you found your sheep no matter where he is. And if that sheep was broken and unable to make it home, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 pictures the shepherd gathering the sheep, the lambs in his arms and carrying them in his bosom. That is a demanding <clears throat> position. And, and of course, as you all know, this is a picture of spiritual leadership in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, in Acts 20, Paul warned the, the elders of the church at Ephesus that dangerous wolves will come among you not sparing the flock. They're going to encounter dangerous people. and uh, But they are to be leaders of the people. But, but also in the ancient Near East, not only is it a way leaders are described, but it is a way kings were described. And you see that in the Bible. I, I mentioned 1 Kings 22 previously. 1 Kings 22... Verse 17. Ahab is king. Remember, he doesn't like Micaiah anyway. And Micaiah comes before Ahab and he says, I saw all Israel like sheep without a shepherd. Now, isn't it interesting? They don't need anybody to interpret that. They know what that means. Well, see, all Israel like sheep without a shepherd means that Ahab is going to be killed in this particular battle. And that's exactly what Micaiah meant to convey. But a king was referred to as a shepherd, and you even have that in the law code of Hammurabi. He speaks of himself as a shepherd who guides his people who guides his people to uh, a place 
where there's a peaceful place where there are safe pastures. That's from the law code of Hammurabi. Sounds similar to Psalm 23, doesn't it? But the things that they attributed to pagan kings, the things they attributed to their gods, are the things the Bible attributes to the true God. So when we think of the Lord as shepherd, all of this idea, these ideas are here. Any, anything else, anything I'm, I'm missing there that you want to, to mention or emphasize? Okay? The Lord is my shepherd. He said, I shall not want. Now, some have suggested because of... Um, the way we look at the world and we're always desiring more, that maybe the better way is to say this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Do any of your versions have that? God supplies us with all that we need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. It doesn't have the object of what we do not want or what we do not lack. But I think the idea would certainly be like Psalm 34 and verse 10 states that young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. The NLT, the New Living Translation, looser than the others but I have all that I need have all that I need yes have all that I need so the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters um don't know how many pictures that you see of you've seen of Palestine. Um, I, I know in the past we we drew maps on the board that were so vivid that it made you all feel like you were there. Uh, but but if you see if you see pictures of Palestine to have a green field, green pasture is a rarity, isn't it? And there's just not a whole lot of grazing land that is there. But what's conveyed in this? There's a couple of ideas to lie down in green pastures and lead me beside quiet waters. What would be some ideas that are conveyed in that familiar expression, David? Well, what I've heard, and I'm not, uh, I'm not that up on the behavior of sheep. Mm-hmm. But I've heard that if the waters were running, the sheep wouldn't take a drink out of it. Okay. Okay. They weren't they were afraid to. Mm-hmm. And so the waters needed to be still or quiet okay. so that they could drink. Okay. It's a peaceful setting. It is absolutely a peaceful setting. A very peaceful setting in this passage. So you have the quiet waters. And by the way, the word quiet uh, is connected to the word for rest. 
Who in the Bible, remember, was given a name because it was connected with the word rest? Do you remember that? Noah in Genesis 5, verse 29. And this is connected to that particular word that's used in the word quiet. I'm talking about quiet waters that David mentioned. And as Boyd mentioned, it's a peaceful scene. And before one of you had mentioned, I think that it might have been Boyd who mentioned the word provision. Provision. It makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. You have plenty to eat. You have plenty to drink. And for sheep, and I'm no expert on sheep, because David said, but you don't get any better than that. You know, to be able to. But what does the idea of lying down indicate? Just in itself. Think about that just a moment. You're safe. What's that? You're safe. You don't feel like you're going to need to run. Yes, it, it indicates security. Um, you, you you lie down. It indicates security. Uh, over and over, one of the blessings of the covenant that is invoked is that you will lie down. And no one will make you afraid. And that is particularly used of the people. Um, and I think it's used in Ezekiel 34, 14, and 15. But you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. It's a picture of security. So this is a picture of provision. This is a picture of security. The people have plenty to eat and they are not threatened off by adversaries. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. Then in verse 3, He restores my soul. The phrase restores my soul. This phrase was used back in 19 verse 7. In verse 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord, forgive me for I'm running out of room, but the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Here it talks about what the Lord does, what the shepherd does. The shepherd restores my soul. There it talks about what the law of the Lord does, the Torah does. It restores our soul. It restores our soul. Now that word soul can be translated different ways as well. It restores our life. Uh, is a way to do it. But when we are broken and when we don't think we can go on, the Lord restores our life. He restores our soul. And He guides us in paths of righteousness. Now, when we're talking about sheep and a shepherd, the shepherd is guiding the sheep in the way the sheep ought to go. And usually in this, there is not a moral component when we're talking about shepherd and sheep. They're guided in the right path in the sense that this is the best path, the best path to provision, to safety, to everything else. But when we're talking about people, we're talking about a moral component in that. He guides us in the paths of righteousness. He guides us in the right way and directs us in the way we should go. Young people, if you want to keep yourselves out of trouble in life, 
listen to God. It's going to keep you out of a whole lot of trouble. The Lord, He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. And I love this phrase. Um, For His name's sake. For His name's sake. Let's suppose you tried to make a living as a shepherd. And someone gives you their flock for safekeeping. And you lose a lot of the sheep. You lose them. They get destroyed by wild animals. They, they die of malnutrition. Um, that's not going to have to happen many times before you're probably going to be looking for a new occupation. Because you're going to get a pretty bad name as a shepherd... And no one is wanting to hire you. Ultimately, the well-being of the sheep reflects upon the shepherd. But God says, He leads us in the paths of righteousness for His sake, for His glory, for His honor, for His praise. God does A lot of things for His name's sake. Look at Psalm 25, verse 11. Psalm 25, verse 11. For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. In Psalm 31, verse 3. For You are my rock and my fortress. For you, for your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. And we could keep going, but over and over throughout Scripture, the Bible emphasizes that God guides, God leads, God directs us in the right way for His name's sake. And you remember when Moses, when God told Moses, "I'm going to destroy you," I'm going to, excuse me, "I'm going to destroy the people, Moses. I'm going to make of you a great nation." And Moses' argument is basically this: <coughs> "Lord, what will happen to your great name?" The Lord has a lot invested. In his people. And if we make it safely home, a lot of it is going to be simply because he held us up for his name's sake along the way. He held us up and he strengthened us. And then in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Do any of your translations have anything different for valley of shadow of death? Mine says valley of deep darkness. Valley of deep darkness. Valley of deep darkness. And that is the... 
Well, actually, it's it's just a side note for okay. New American Standard. New American Standard, okay. There is, if you get to read a lot on Psalm 23, a lot of debate about that word uh, and about whether deep darkness or um, the way it's translated in the text, the valley of shadow of death, which, which is the best, or, or maybe if some other word portrays that. But I think whichever way you go, you come out basically at the same place. However you describe the treachery, does following the good shepherd mean there will never be difficulties in our life? No. Does it mean there won't be difficulties? Does it mean there won't be foes? Sometimes the place where the sheep are trying to go to get food and to get water are very popular among predators for the same reason. Because they can go and get food. And they can go and get water. But he, even when he is in the most threatening of circumstances, the text says, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. One of the commentaries that I was looking at started just going from the book of Genesis and mentioning every time that God gave that promise. I will be with you. And at first I'm looking at this and I'm saying, this is overkill. I've got the point. But maybe that was part of the point. That over and over and over, that is God's answer to our crisis. I am with you. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. And God's rod and God's staff are well able to comfort me. That's the most remarkable statement in this psalm to me. In a lot of ways, I think it is. And it's the, I think it's the reason why it has become such a powerful funeral statement, uh, why it has been used so much in those circumstances and why it has endeared itself to us. But it's a psalm, as one writer described, it's not just a psalm that it needs to be there at death, but needs to be there at life. So that will be our response when we face that. You know, I, I I don't know if when the as we've discussed before, when that day comes, if in my life, if I'm going to warning or whether I'm going to be content simply to be taken quickly out of the way, or I don't suppose there's probably a good way to die. Um, second coming would be uh, very good. Uh, But I can't help but think for those of us who are here that if we do get that news that this is not going to be one of the first verses that come to our mind. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will not fear for you are with me 
and your rod and staff comfort me, David. I think one of man's greatest fears is being alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're social creatures, some of yeah. us more than others, but I don't think any of us particularly likes being alone, especially for long periods of time. And so the fact that we're never alone yeah. because God's with us can be very comfortable. Oh, absolutely. And and as we stated as we stated before, you see it in all kinds of situations is the answer to all kinds of difficult circumstances. That, that I am with you. And that's when Jesus called us to go out and preach the gospel, teach teach every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And I will never leave you, forsake you, said in Joshua 1.5 and picked up in Hebrews 13, verse 5. But I think what David said is right. It's, you know, we... We we want we don't want to be alone in time of crisis. And, uh, um, Christy, when she suffers, when she when she was sick about this time last year, she wanted me to close the door on her and forget about her and and uh, go ahead with my life. And, and um, uh, but I'm not that way. When I suffer, I want everybody to suffer. Like in my first week twelve, I'm trying to get the whole body involved. Uh, one member suffers, they all suffer with it. And uh, so, you know, I, so I'm that way, David. I don't want to be left alone in times of suffering. And I know I have given you this quotation before. Um, but it is powerful. And Derek Kidner made the statement, Only the Lord leads a man through death. All other guides turn back and the traveler must go alone. <clears throat> By the way, I'll tell you something else that's interesting. The word, the word for evil that's used in verse 4 is very similar in Hebrew to the word for shepherd. And one writer made this point, the fact that they are, the words are so similar, pits the Shepherd against the threatening evil in a dramatic way. But still he will not fear because you are with me. And in verse 5 and 6, the, 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 the whole, the, the, it changes. Let me erase some of this. In verse 5 and 6, the imagery is not so much of the Lord as shepherd but the Lord as host. The Lord is host. And in this particular passage, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So you prepare a table before me. God is the host and we are the guests at the table of the Lord. And present are enemies. Um, and, and I thought back to the previous psalm 
Remember how some were mocking in Psalm 22 in verse 8 and they were saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. These people were mocking. They were taunting. Do you really think God is satisfied with you? Well, yes, they're going to see it because there's going to be a dinner where He is honored. He is the guest of honor and all His enemies will witness this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anointed my head with oil. Now, do you remember when Jesus came into Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke 7, in verses 44 through 46? Uh, The text emphasizes, you didn't give me, you did not a wash. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hairs. It was normal dried them with her hair. It was normal for a host when he received a guest, it was normal for that host to provide them with oil to anoint their head. And he said, you haven't even done that. But here, God is performing all the functions of a host. God is being a gracious host. God is anointing His head with oil. And His cup is overflowing. Now, how does that tie back to what's said earlier in the psalm? My cup overflows. What did He say earlier in the psalm? It would be similar to that. You shall not want in verse 1 and in verse 2 there are the green pastures and there are the quiet waters so there's plenty to eat and here's the same kind of picture there is abundant uh, provisions because there are infinite resources you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anointed my head with oil surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, now looking at some of this, surely goodness and mercy. This particular word goodness usually just translated good, but it's used for example in Exodus 33 verse 19 when God tells Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses had asked, show me your glory. God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And the word mercy is our word. We have put on the board some for loving kindness. It's sometimes translated loving kindness. It is sometimes translated uh, steadfast love. But... Uh, remember when God does make all His goodness pass before Moses, He describes Himself as the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, abounding in loving kindness. He uses His Word. And so these are a couple of the attributes that are the most central in describing who God is. He is a good God. He is a God of mercy. And these attributes of God are pictured in the New American Standard word here is a little tame. It says, they will follow me all the days of my life. Do your versions have something else for the word follow? 
definition I have says pursue. Pursue, yes. It is worded often means pursue, as Ray said. And it is often used in the book of Psalms to talk about uh, his enemies pursuing him. His enemies, you see it, for example, in Psalm 83, verse 15. 83, verse 15, of an enemy that is pursuing him. And often uh, it is enemies. Uh, let me look at my verses here. I've got down that it's found in 7 1, it's found in 1837. Both of those use the term for enemies or military conflicts where the enemy is chasing down another. But here, what is it that is chasing us? What is it that is pursuing us? That is hounding us? That won't let us escape? It's not something bad. That's the hound of God. Something good. Yes, the hound of God. When was that poem written, by the way? When? Yeah. I'm not sure, but it was C.S. Lewis, wasn't it? No, it was. It was. Um, what C.S. Lewis? Um, it, it might have been Calvin Coolidge. It was, it was 1880, though. It was written. I think it was, 18, it was 1880. I just looked that up. I, I just looked it up a second ago. It wasn't. It was neither Calvin Coolidge nor Mark Twain nor uh, C.S. Lewis, but, but it, it was written in 1880. Hound of Heaven is a poem, and it, it's, it has that basic idea. But I waited too late. I thought it was shorter than it was. I was going to read it before class, and then I realized, oh, this is longer than I thought. I have to read this after Thompson. class. Who? Francis Thompson. That was that's right, Francis Thompson. <laughs> that's who wrote it. And um, but but it's the idea of God's blessings are pursuing us, and they won't let us go. You know, I remember years ago, uh, Gary Sandusky had come back from India and he was talking about how many they baptized. And I said, how did you baptize so many? Just just a short time. He said, well, he said, if you are talking to a group of people who have been convinced that the gods are hate them and have been trying and are trying to destroy them and he said if you can get them to see the Bible pictures a God who loves us he wants to save us and bless us that is an eye opening revelation and it can change their lives and that's what happened basically it may more of us in this country recognize that. That His goodness and loving kindness and those attributes are going to be tied together a lot around Psalm 100, for example. They're pursuing us and they're following us and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, again, there's a lot of debate on verse 6. You know, this oh, it doesn't mean we will live forever with God. It means some say it, we will just He's just going to worship at God's house as long as He lives. Well, 
That may be what he was intending, but God may have intended more by this than even the author completely understood. The thing about our covenant with God, this is a beautiful thing about our covenant God, there's no logical ending point. If we have a God who is eternal, and if He is always our God, there's no logical stopping place to that, to dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. But isn't it interesting that ultimately His goal is God Himself? That is His goal. It says a lot about people where they want to be. And when people's greatest desire is to be in God's house, that speaks volumes of them. What do you think about the psalm before we seek to apply it to Jesus? Anything that you can... I would just say, the older I get, the more that means to me. The whole psalm? The whole psalm. But especially those, the point about Him pursuing us. I... uh, uh, that that is touching to me that God wants me that badly to serve Him. I love the idea that God is seeking people who seek Him, and we in John four twenty four it says that the Father seeks such to worship Him about worshiping Spirit and Truth. God is seeking people who are seeking Him. Such a partnership throughout this whole thing. I mean, just recognizing all those he's and uh, vows, and it's like it's God and me. It's like forever. Yes, it is, and it's so comforting. There's such word that comes to my mind as you started to speak, Brad, is intimacy. Yeah, the intimacy between ourselves and our God, and. And you understand, and I think the reason some of us would object to a phrase like personal relationship with God is we don't want to minimize our together responsibilities. And I am 100% behind that. We don't want to minimize our together responsibilities, our coming together to worship, our coming together to partake of a Lord's Supper, our coming together to do various other things. But... When those doors close and everybody goes home, that relationship between the shepherd and the sheep doesn't end. There's an intimacy there that continues throughout all of life. And this is, is beautifully reflected in, in this psalm, um, in, in, in the personal relationship the writer has. Brad? Um. It, this psalm just seems to be unique among the psalms uh, about how how in depth this um, metaphor is, mm-hmm. and just it's, a lot of times you'll see the rock that the Lord is is like this, or is my rock and my salvation. But this is just a whole metaphor in and of itself. Yes, all wrapped up. Um, a long time ago, when I was young, my dad found an article up from a guy who spent several months 
in Israel with shepherds in an effort to better understand the analogy. Like, what is it? What does it mean? And yeah. he, he observed and then asked a lot of questions. I don't know if um, all of his findings were uh, maybe true, but there there are some very interesting stories yeah. uh, about some of these um, descriptions. Yes. Um, yeah. And Dad did a, a sermon, and I remember it to this day. Yeah. Well, good. Well, good. It, it is a... There are a lot of these kind of comparisons made, like Brad mentions, like, he's my rock and my shield. Those aren't as personal as sheep and shepherd. Now, I know when you think of your closest relationship, you know, you may not think in terms of sheep, shepherd. But you think about going out and finding one that's lost and carrying it in your arms. Or putting it on your neck and carrying it back. That is, that's, that's pretty pers- it's pretty close personal bond in those ways. And for that to be used as a description of us and God, I mean, it does register on our memories and and it is there there are a few psalms like this that develop a metaphor so so um, fully even in spite of it being a short psalm yes deborah um, i think i always thought of like the first three verses as you know just during this peaceful picture and then the next is during kind of rough times but as comparing verse two and five so much uh-huh. i'm thinking like there's even like the sheep like they could be surrounded by predators and by the enemy, yeah. but with the sheep focusing on the shepherd and who he is and who he, what he provides, then it gives us this beautiful, peaceful picture, and then yeah. the enemies like disappear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The enemies are there in verse five, but they're not the focal point. You know, they're just kind of very perif on the. Uh, they're very peripheral. That, you know, because the focus is on God uh, and the Psalm, God and David. And, and you're right, you know, the predators may have been there all along. The enemies may have been there, but God can make them secure. And uh, may God help us always to remember that when the times get difficult. Now, I know... Some of this is going to be really easy for you all. But what are some ways that Jesus fulfills Psalm 23? I have my back to you right now. Just go ahead and shout it out. John 10. John 10. John 10 emphasizes what, John? Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd in John 10. And uh, I am the good shepherd. And you see it in verses 1 through 18. And and in that context, the shepherd leads the sheep. And he provides food for the sheep. And he protects the sheep. And he sustains the life of the sheep. And, And particularly, he emphasizes, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. David fought a lion. David fought a bear. But David lived to tell the story of that experience. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. The Bible 
in Ezekiel 34 has a horrible picture of the failure of shepherds in the days of Ezekiel. And he talked about the shepherds who who you know, took advantage of the flock and they um, and they served they they took the flock and they ate the flock and and uh, gorged themselves at the expense of the flock. But here the shepherd killed the sheep killed the shepherd. The sheep killed the shepherd. And you know, also in John, you see this kind of image carried on. We use this passage Sunday morning, John 21, verses 15 through 17. Where the Bible keeps using that expression, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. John 21, and verse uh, 15. But, I want you to think about this too. When Jesus, in Mark's account of the feeding of the 4,000, and the feeding of the 4,000 is the only miracle besides the resurrection recorded in all four Gospels. And in Mark 6, verse 34, says the people gathered and Jesus felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. Then it says in verse 39 that he has them to sit down on the green grass. Okay, sheep without a shepherd, green grass. Hmm. Sounds a lot like Psalm 23. Sounds a lot like Jesus is the shepherd promised. But I want you to think about how that scene, and again, this is the context of the feeding of the 5,000. Think about how this scene combines both of these images from Psalm 23. Not only is Jesus the good shepherd who takes care of the sheep, but also He is the host who takes these five pieces of bread and this uh, these two fish and he feeds 5,000 men not including women and children they bring they, t- they take up more afterward than they had when they started he can truly make our cup overflow there are infinite resources at his command and so and, and remember the pictures that talk about The kingdom of God is a great banquet. How blessed is the one who eats bread at the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks about the kingdom as a banquet to which all are invited. He is the host. And we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. (laughs) In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. So again, that idea of the host. Look at Revelation 7. Revelation 7. Revelation 7, let's begin with verses 15 to 17. It says, For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. I would say that they have no want. They have no lack. In verse 17, For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, 
And He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God being, or Christ being the Good Shepherd, is something that is true now, and something that will be true in a deeper sense in eternity. As He guides us to the springs of the water of life, a lamb will be their shepherd. Did you notice that imagery? A lamb will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will take away every tear from from their eye. Um, We could... Some other passages that use... This image of Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13, 20, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, he is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And 1 Peter 5, 4, he is the chief shepherd. And he shall appear. What else did you have? Anything, Mary? He's the bread of life and the source of living waters. Okay. Okay, that's right. In John 6, you see Him as the bread of life. Jesus as the bread of life. And then in John 4, it doesn't say, I am the living water, but it's the same kind of idea. He, in a sense, is the green pasture and the quiet water. Now, we could go on more but this is powerful. And may it be... And like Brad, Brad said earlier about his dad preaching the sermon and he still remembers it. Hopefully this passage will embed itself on the memory of all of us so that it may comfort us and strengthen us in the midst of the dark valleys. And um, as... Um, before Brad's going to lead us in song in just a second, boy, would you lead us in prayer? Mm-hmm. Oh God in heaven, we come to you praising you as our God and our Father, our Shepherd, the one who loves us so much. He gave your Son, He gave His life for us. We, we love the picture of a shepherd with its sheep. And uh, uh, we, we see that the shepherd is no whim. He is brave. He's courageous. He loves us too much to uh, just go on. Let let us go on in a in a way that uh, is dangerous for us. But he pursues us. We are we are thankful, God, for your pursuit uh, in our lives. For your love that you love us that much and want us to be with you forever. Help us, God. Uh, to appreciate that, to live our lives bringing glory to you because of how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.